Nehemiah chapter 9, starting at verse 30, let us hear the very words of the Lord from this prayer. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the land. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Now therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardships seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people, since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. Let's pray. Lord, as your word goes forward, Lord, in the preaching this morning, I pray, Lord, that you would meet all the needs of your people. Let your will be done, Lord, with this message out of Nehemiah. And Lord, you encourage the hearts who follow hard after you, who might be discouraged this morning. May they find rest in, in you. And Lord, for those who are lost, would you call them to yourself and save them? We ask for a mighty work this morning. In Jesus' name and all God's children said, Amen. Be seated. Well, good morning. My name is Eric Maddy. I'm a member here at LEFC where I serve on the prayer team with my wife, Melanie, and every now and then get the chance to teach and preach. I want to thank the elders for the opportunity and privilege to bring the Word of God to you this morning. And if you're new here, welcome. Thanks for being a part of this. So we are in a series that we're calling Route 66 taking each book of the Bible and seeing the one full redemptive message and how each of the 66 books fit together. Because of this dynamic of 66 books telling one big story, I I think it's helpful for us to see and liken the Bible to a picture puzzle, each puzzle piece having a unique shape and design to fit together and is needed for the picture to be whole. And when the whole image is completed, you can see the context. It provides the context, and it helps us to understand certain books in the bigger picture. Uh, a few weeks ago, Melanie and I went on, a, went on a trip to St. Louis for her birthday, and we booked ourselves an English-themed hotel that had a small fashion pub that was rather packed on St. Patty's Day night. So we couldn't get in there for our fish and chips, so what we decided to do is go down the hallway where they had this open living room concept of a conference room with books, had a table where you could have some chess, they had some sofas and coffee tables that had puzzles. So these puzzles were the really intricately laser-cut puzzles. So we grabbed the one, it was 500 pieces, which is something that we don't normally do. (laughs) So, but with one we grabbed had a disclaimer on the box cover. It said, warning, this puzzle is missing 34 pieces. So it made it even closer to impossible for us to guess some sections, let alone to match the picture on the box. I share this story because it's important for us to have all the pieces of the Bible together in our reading schedule and in our spiritual journey as we study the Word of God. You see, sometimes in the Old Testament, we can have this mentality that it's okay to skip 19 books of the Old Testament that are boring and dry and really not sure what it has to do with our Christian walk. But God, as the author of Scripture, has these books in here for a reason. 
And they all contribute to the singular redemptive message that helps us in our spiritual walk. You know, taking the Testaments alone, when we look at the Old Testament, we understand that it is the gospel promised. It is the gospel promised not only because it predicts Jesus coming and being the seed of the first woman sent to crush the serpent and save humanity, but also it's because he is the, self, he is the offspring of King David, the coming king in the Old Testament looks for as the promised king to overtake and rule and reign. And while going through the Old Testament events and covenants and people and the institutions that we find, uh, we see this progressive narrative that is unfolding God's kingdom plan. And today we're in Nehemiah. And I've titled today's message, Nehemiah, God Restoring the Lives of His People. Now, if you're like me and you try to help give yourself some, some memory prompts, when it comes to Nehemiah, don't do what I did for so long. You see, I thought Nehemiah was like all the other ayahs in the book. You know of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Obadiah and Zechariah and Zephaniah. We know these as being prophets. And one could think that, well, because they all rhyme, Nehemiah rhymes with it, maybe he's a prophet too. <laughs> well, I'm here to tell you, no. <laughs> Nehemiah, the person nor the book, is a, is a prophet. In the book of Nehemiah, we're actually at the end of the historical narrative. If you recall, we're in the Old Testament, and in our English books, it's divided in the sections of 5, 12, 5, 5, 12. Five books of the law, 12 historical narratives, five books of poetry, Five major prophets, and then five, or 12 minor prophets. So Nehemiah is found in the first grouping of that 12 narratives. Now, the placement of this book is important. You see, the placement of any book of the Bible is important in how we understand it and how we are to interpret it. So as we open our books to Nehemiah, let me first answer the question is where we are at in this progressive narrative. And let me reintroduce to you the chart giving us a history. Coming out of Matthew chapter 1, verse 17, where he talks about that there's 14 generations between three major time periods. One is between Abraham and David. The second one from David to the exile. And then the third one from the exile until Christ's first coming. Our opening verses today tell us and say it very well when it says, I'm going to reread it again. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hands of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end for them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. So where we are at is this third major time period from the exile to Christ. And at that we're at the end where God's hand is beginning to lift of his discipline and he's sending the people back to Israel, the land of Israel, where we learned last week Ezra was rebuilding the temple and now Nehemiah is going to be rebuilding the walls around Jerusalem and make some reforms. So this is the context of Nehemiah as a book. So you might be asking yourself this. Why would then a born-again believer... Read the book of Nehemiah today. I mean, these people are in a time when I can't relate. 
how does this relate to the Christians today who we know in the New Testament and in the time era that we are in that God calls us the temple of the Holy Spirit? And we as a people of God are scattered and settled around the earth called to evangelize into the lost and go everywhere and display God's glory, not just in one city, but in every city around the world. Well, let me tell you the reason why. You see, in the foreshadowing events of the exodus of Egypt, we are reminded of how God saves us from the slavery of our sin. Well, in Nehemiah, there's a foreshadowing of Jesus' ministry and work, as well as how God restores the lives of his people. Do you need restoring today? Maybe you're in a time where you're dry or you're discouraged. Maybe you're under God's hand of of discipline because you've been disobedient and you need a touch of his mercy and of his rescuing. Well, Nehemiah would be the book to find that hope. Well, Nehemiah is the main character of the book, the main figure, the one who is moving and doing a work in Nehemiah and in the people of God is actually God himself. So our outline today features what we see God doing in Nehemiah. So number one, in Nehemiah, we see that God sent Nehemiah from Persia. Let me tell you something about Nehemiah first off. I've been looking at this book for just over a month and just reading it and rereading it and listening to it and reading commentaries and and not just for myself, but just for the study, of course, for studying for this. But I got to tell you, the more I learned about this man, the more I was like, I really got to get my act together. (laughs) He's a man of great passion, of great prayer. He's a practical man. He has a godly perspective on living and on life. Let me give you some examples here. Look at me at Nehemiah chapter 1. Han and I, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Nehemiah continues in verse 4, As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. This report so burdened him that he prayed and he fasted It affected him for days. In fact, it goes into his prayer in that time, within that chapter, and he associates himself. He says, we have sinned before you, Lord. He he associates his people, the the ancestors of of his past, but yet he's saying, we. And he feels that burden. This prayer vigil, and ultimately this burden deeply affected him well beyond just a couple of days. It went on into four months It so burdened him that once we learn who Nehemiah is, at the end of the chapter, he says he is the cupbearer to the king of Persia, living 1,300 miles away from Jerusalem in a palace, living the good life, if you will. This burden actually affected his job. Listen to Nehemiah's account in chapter 2. Now, I had not been sad in his, the king's, presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing that you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. 
Then I was very much afraid, and I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by the fire? Then the king said to him, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. You see, Nehemiah's sadness was noted by the king as he was bringing wine to him and the queen in this private affair. Nehemiah, as a servant in the court, was never to let his negative emotions show before the king. For such negative emotions may be construed as being dissatisfied or angry with the king, maybe even plotting against him. It could jeopardize his position or even possibly his life. But what I appreciate here is that the king sees this. And what I appreciate about Nehemiah here is that he does go on to say, long live the king, but he doesn't fake it. He doesn't say, long live the king and everything's fine. No, he says, long live the king, but... But here is why I'm sad. He's transparent to the king. And the king responds and asks, what are you requesting? And look at that next sentence I highlighted here. So I prayed to the God of heaven. I love that. I love that because Nehemiah was a man of the habit of an extended prayer we see throughout this book, but he also had times where he had breath prayers. Those quick prayers of asking God in that moment for something. And as he was recalling other events in the, in the book of Nehemiah, he penned other times where he had breath prayers. Look at me at chapter 4, verse 4. When the people were opposing and ridiculing the work of rebuilding the wall, he prayed, Hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captive. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out for your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. And then verse, in chapter 6, we see him also had this breath prayer when, they, when those who opposed the wall began spreading rumors, hoping that these rumors would cause them to stop. Nehemiah 6, 9, he recounts, for they wanted to frighten us, thinking their hand will drop from the work and it will be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. Nehemiah was a man of great passion and of great prayer. And when it comes to prayer, God hears your prayers because you're a blood-bought child of God, not because you're an eloquent speaker. Charles Spurgeon said, true prayer is measured by weight and not the length. So I encourage you this morning, if, if you have the excuse of, I'm too busy to pray, learn how to have breath prayers, where you just say quick things to the Lord. Start it with the well-known ones. Let me, let me give you some of the more well-known ones here. Your will be done. Oh, could you imagine you saying this in the middle of a fight? <laughs> Praying, search my heart, O God. Or maybe you would pray, I am weak, therefore I acknowledge that you are strong for me. Maybe in the middle of a, of a, of a something you're trying to take care of, a decision you need to make, that quick prayer, give me wisdom. You ever pray for that? The breath prayers in that moment. 
Be exalted above all things. Another breath prayer. To just say, Lord, whether I look one way or another, let your name be exalted. Or how about this in the morning? This is the day you've made. Let me rejoice and be glad in it. And then finally, lead me not to temptation. Nehemiah is a great example of breathing prayer, of continuing his life in prayer. The other attributes of Nehemiah that we'll see in the next coming points. So I just want to continue on forward in the narrative of Nehemiah. So our second point is, in Nehemiah, we see that God set new walls for protection. So when Nehemiah gets to Jerusalem, he gathers all the the citizens of Jerusalem together. And he says this, he says, Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned? Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. Derision, what a a word. Derision is the people of God living there were being mocked. They were being jeered, disgraced and laughed at because of the state of the walls. You see, the walls of Jerusalem were broken down and the gates were destroyed by fire because way back when the discipline happened, the Babylonian armies came and destroyed the walls and took captive the Jerusalem citizens. In the ancient Near East, a city like this was vulnerable to thieves, to weather and wild animals, vulnerable to attacks from all sides. And, and up to this point, it had been abandoned for 70-some years. But symbolically, it showed a city in weakness and in shame and in ruins. The testimony it displayed to the enemies of Israel was that it was unprotected by the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Nehemiah was rallying the people of God here. And, and here's where we see him saying in Nehemiah 2, 18a, And I told them of the hand of my God that I had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. We see that he has got this ability to rally the people. Undoubtedly, Nehemiah shared with the people of Jerusalem how God's hand of burden was on him for months. And as he prayed and as he planned He was all during the time that he was in this empire of Persia, serving the king in his palace, 1,300 miles away. Do you know what 1,300 miles away from La Crosse is? Salt Lake City, Utah. It's 25 miles by driving, but back then, that type of miles, 1,300 miles, it's months. But yet he had a burden for something so far away because God was doing a work in his heart. Undoubtedly, Nehemiah was sharing not only the permission that he said that the king gave him to, gave it to him, but also the passes that he would receive on his journey, because he asked the king, give me passes so that when I go through other governor's lands that they don't abate me, they don't stop me from what I'm doing. And then he also had the provision and the thought, forethought to say, by the way, can I go into your forest, king, and grab some timber so I can reconstruct the gates? And the king said yes. Yet Nehemiah testified, and I fully believe he told the people of Jerusalem this story in Nehemiah 2.8. And he said, and the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. There is that godly perspective. That the worldview all Christians should strive and pray to develop. He gave credit where credit was due. Nehemiah seeing God's hand everywhere. 
Years ago, there was a song by Michael W. Smith. The title was, Everywhere I Go, I See You. It's having those eyes stamped with eternity. It's having those eyes stamped to see God's working hand in today's world. That's one other reason why we should read Nehemiah. Because as we see God's work in the message in the Bible, we see God's work and how he would work here in our life. We would grow that we would have, and we ask God to give us a biblical worldview as we study. So why we as born-again believers should read the book of Nehemiah is also to enjoy seeing the wonder and awe of this testimony of God's sovereign hand working through responsible human beings and accomplishing his plan. And we see the result of Nehemiah's talk. It says in verse 18b, And they, the people in Jerusalem, said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. So time doesn't permit me to go into all about the building, about the opposition, about the challenges that they encountered, how God actually stopped the opposition as well. Again, God working in this place. He frustrated their plans. That's all in chapter 4. I encourage you, go back, see God's hand in this. But the concluding verses about the finishing wall, I think this garners our attention. Nehemiah 6. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month Elul in 52 days. And when all of our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of of our God. That's verses 15 and 16. The miracle is not just the fact that they got it done in 52 days, which is an amazing feat. But the other miracle is the opening of the eyes of the enemy of Israel to see that God had helped them. You see, it wasn't one of these things where they were walking around the, the walls one day and therefore saying, wow, these Israelites, they're, they're really handy. They're really good with their building. They did this really fast. No, it, it was this. Uh-oh, that wall got built all around the city in 52 days? That means God's here. God's at work. God helped them put this up. It says that they became afraid and insecure after seeing the work of the Lord restoring the walls. The walls provided protection and dignity to the people of God. The rebuilding was a sign of God returning blessing to his people the rebuilding of the wall in 52 days showed that God had not abandoned them, but rather he was with them the whole time. The walls were a physical statement about restoring and reestablishing of God's people in the land God promised. So in Nehemiah, we see that God set new walls for protection. Number three, in Nehemiah, we see that God strengthened his broken people. Stay with me. While the rebuilding of the temple and the rebuilding of the walls are important themes, what God gets across in his word more than anything else is the importance of restoring and rebuilding and renewing his people. We see this by the sheer volume of time spent recording these events both in Ezra and in Nehemiah. As you recall, those books were actually seen in the Hebrew book as one. The book of Nehemiah is designed 
to help broken people of God know and remember that God is with them. As a book, the Nehemiah presents the life of God's people after they return from the exile. But the returning people of God were not the same after 70 years out of the community of God. So God had orchestrated this new exodus out of Babylon physically, but he still needed to get Babylon out of the people's hearts. The Lord is more interested in restoring hearts that are willing to worship. He is more interested in building walls around the heart and to guard them from evil. The discouraged, the disheartened, and faithless people needed to have their hope restored. That hope is found in God's living and active word, which is why in this restoring act, God strengthened his broken people by renewing the covenant in three steps. The first step is this. Their identity as God's people was established. Nehemiah 7, verse 5, Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by, in, by genealogy. And I found the, the book of the genealogy of those who came up at first, and I found written in it, these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried into exile. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own. Note again God moving and speaking, telling Jeremiah what to do, and he leading this way. So you're probably saying to me, wait a minute, Eric, are you telling me that God told Nehemiah to go ahead and, and gather these people and start listing off this boring list that we also see within Ezra? Yes, I'm telling you that God <laughs> instructed Nehemiah that way. Why would he do that? Those who were going to live inside these walls of Jerusalem were not going to be non-Jews. In reading the names, it was validating who among the returnees were true people of God so that Jerusalem as a city could be purified and the people would be truly set apart, a holy people of God, a remnant of faithful covenant-keeping people. Just imagine... In that gathering of the nobles and the officials, your name comes up. How reassuring after 70 years of slavery do you think that is? That they're saying, yep, legitimate citizen here. Come on in. When you've been despondent and discouraged in your overall faith and psyche, to know that God knows your name is important for us to remember. Psalm 112.6 says, For the righteous will never be moved he will be remembered forever. If you are one of God's children, you who are made righteous by Jesus Christ, you are remembered by God, by your name. He hasn't forgotten you. Such a list of God's people is showing us that God knows them by name and that God wants us to see that he knows them just as he knows you by name. While the returnees may have forgotten who they are as God's people, God hasn't forgotten them as his chosen ones. It was them who he was going to renew the covenant with. That's the first step. The second step was this. The book of the law was exclaimed and explained. Nehemiah 8.8. 8. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Very similar to Ezra, but a different occasion. Ezra brings the book. 
But yet in this setting, there are other priests there that are helping those who are listening to this understand and get a sense of what's really being said, understand what's being read. And what I want us to focus on for this account is the result of God's people taking the better part of a full day to hear the Torah be, being read out loud and explained. Look at me here. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the Lord. As they began to see themselves and see their failures, they began to weep. But they're actually later on encouraged, Don't weep today. Don't weep today, for this is a holy day in which we want you to go out and to rejoice. The, verse 12, and all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. You ever walk out of this room feeling like, I, I understood what was said today. I'm rejoicing that God had opened that up for me. You know, there was a reason why they brought the word out. It was not only to cause conviction, but to cause rejoicing. We can look at our failings and mourn over them time and time again. We can always be very well astute of our own misgivings or our misses. But there are times when God is calling us to stop making it all about ourselves and see God's mercy and his steadfast love in our life, and to make it a point of rejoicing and to turn it around to see God's faithfulness. Hope is found in the recounting of God's faithfulness, even in the midst of God's people being unfaithful. Our strength is not found in ourselves, but it's found in the one true God who is strength. The next step was the festival of booths was exercised. And they found it in the law of the Lord, in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seven months, and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns in Jerusalem, and go out to the hills and bring branches of olives, wild olives, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as as it is written. That's in Nehemiah 8, 14, and 15. And then down on 17, it says, And all the assembly of those who had returned from captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, to the day of the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. One thing you have to remember about Israel's festivals is that they commemorate what God had done for them in the past. And this festival of booze was the time in which it reminds God's faithfulness to them when they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years and didn't have a homeland. They had to make, had this makeshift booth, if you will. So for seven days during this festival, they, they made these booths in which they had to lie in and on the eighth day be somber. Here in Nehemiah, he is inviting the people that are to compare their journey from the exile to the journey of celebrated in the festival of booze, that there was years in which they did not go to their promised land, but now that they were coming, 
this strengthening exercise resulted in great rejoicing. And sometimes when, when I first read that, I was wondering why. It just sounds like a horrible camping trip. <laughs> Here's why. Because this festival reminds them of God's mighty act on their behalf. And when God's mighty act happens, it shows his people that he loves them. And those mighty acts are celebrated in the memorials that God gives his people so that they remember what he has done and how he has loved them. Hope has been restored by looking to the past faithfulness of God And this in turn stimulated the people in Jerusalem to confess with rejoicing in his mercies and recommit themselves to the Lord through the covenant. That is chapter 9 through 12 that we see. Again, go back and and take a look at that. So in Nehemiah, we see that God strengthens his broken people. Number four, in Nehemiah, we see that God sovereignly foreshadowed his plan. When we read Nehemiah, we want the end of the story to be at 12, okay? (laughs) Because at 12, we see a holy people in the holy city and a holy temple worshiping and recommitting their life, and we hope that they live happily ever after. But then chapter 13 comes. It's years later in Nehemiah's memoirs, And when we read it, we realize that like all of God's people, that no matter how committed we feel in reforming outwardly, we still need to be transformed inwardly. The people are still in need of a Savior to do an inward work. And while Nehemiah as a book ends awkwardly with the people of God still having problems, the temple needed to be cleansed again, in which Nehemiah did it in righteous indignation, still looking for the ultimate Messiah as Malachi prophesies, we know on this side of the Testament, us living in the church age, know that Christ is coming. You see, in this redemptive story, Nehemiah foreshadows Jesus' work in God's plan several ways. Let me tell you about them. Nehemiah foreshadows and typifies Jesus who will one day be sent by God the Father from the throne room of heaven just as he was sent by God from the Persian throne to Jerusalem. Nehemiah foreshadows a day when the enemies of God sees the finished work of Christ and will proclaim, surely he was the Son of God, just as they saw the finished wall and perceived that God had helped the Israelites. Nehemiah typifies Jesus who wept over Jerusalem, just as he had done when he heard of the report of the city walls and the gates being burned and the people were in trouble and in shame. Nehemiah typifies Jesus who would call his disciples to come and follow him and build God's kingdom through the church as he called the people of God to rise and build the wall with him. Just as there were plots against Jesus, there were plots against Nehemiah. Nehemiah typifies Jesus who cleansed the temple with righteous indignation just as he had to do upon his return. Nehemiah finished the work of God sent him to do just as Jesus finished the work the Father told him to do. And then this quote from James Hamilton. With the rebuilding of the temple and the walls, Nehemiah initiated a renewal of the covenant 
typifying the way Jesus would come and replace the temple and provide his people with security and initiate a new covenant. Isn't that amazing? God sovereignly foreshadows his plan throughout the book of Nehemiah. So I said earlier, though, Nehemiah foreshadows the restoring of lives of his people. How do we see this? I would make the suggestion to you that it's done today but with three tools that we just at times need to dig a little bit deeper into. First of all, God restores our identity as his people when we remember our baptism. When we declare that we are citizens of heaven and partakers in the priesthood of God. When we on that day go down with our old life and come out of the water and representing new life has happened in our life symbolically. That we are his children and new creations in Christ. Our identity is found in Jesus. Secondly, God exclaims and explains in the New Testament that his steadfast love and mercies never end for those he loves. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And so we realize that you are being invited to come to the throne room of grace and ask your Father's forgiveness and enjoy the Father's forgiveness. Enjoy his presence of him saying, we're at peace. I love you, my daughter. I love you, my son. Third, God reminds us of his saving mercies through the memorial exercise of partaking in the Lord's Supper, which is to be both a sobering, a sobering reflection and a jubilant celebration, a remembering of the new covenant in his blood in which he had done a heart change in us and writes his covenant word on our heart. He turns our heart of stone into hearts of flesh, therefore making us born again. So brothers and sisters, read the book of Nehemiah. Grow in your worldview as you see God moving in it. Be challenged in your work as you see how Nehemiah depends on the Lord as he does his work. And finally, worship as you recount God's mercy in your life to renew and to restore your hope that's only found in Christ. Let's pray. Mighty God, we have so much to be thankful for that you have brought us such a book, Lord, that throughout the ages you have, you have had this story be intact and to inspire us. But Lord, even more so, we learn that you are a God who takes sin seriously but also takes restoring personally. And Lord, we see that by you sending your son, Jesus Christ, dying on the cross and then rising again from the dead and proclaiming new life for all those who believe in the work of Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you. I pray, Lord, that you would restore and renew those who need to be encouraged today and to know that you are their Savior, their Redeemer, their Lord, and their friend. In Jesus' name and all God's children said, Amen. Amen. Would you please stand as we continue in worship?
faithfulness and Lord we take a moment now to remember our brother Calvin who's recently passed away Lord he is now experiencing your faithfulness to its fullest as he's able to see you face to face and Lord we thank you for that example we praise you that, is he, that he is with you now. And Lord, as we are looking back at the Old Testament and we see this picture of Nehemiah, your faithfulness is revealed in the example of those families that were exiled away from Jerusalem And 70 years later, their names are recorded and, and they are called out to return to those very same towns to dwell in those areas. 